I made a visit to Walden Pond. Uh, this is the place where Henry David Thoreau did his retreat in the mid 1800s, where he sat for where he he was there for uh, two years, two months, and two days. It seemed a variation on the Tibetans: three years, three months, and three days. Um, anyhow, it, you know, I'm sure the area has changed a lot since he was there, and the surrounding neighborhood has become much more busy. And yet it's still a very beautiful place where one can touch into peace, tranquility. It's still readily accessible. In walking around the pond, you know, there's various um, interpretive signs, you know, talking about nature and then having a quote from Thoreau. And he actually was someone who deeply inspired me in my youth when I read many of his writings on nature, there was just such a strong resonance. And yesterday, I found this again, when uh, right actually beside the site where his house had been, where his small cabin had been, there was a quote from him that really um, struck me. And it was a sign that I was hoping that everybody that's there would read. And so this sign said, his uh, quote from Thoreau, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I come to die, discover that I had not lived. Just in reading that, it uh, resonated with me in the way of what we do when we come to practice in what you may have experienced in deciding to do a retreat at the Forest Refuge, that, you know, coming here to find a way to live deliberately and to front only the essential facts of life and to see what we can learn from the nature of our own minds and bodies so that when we die, we won't... um, discover that we have not yet lived. And the nature that we look into in the discovering of our hearts and minds is the same law of nature that Thoreau was letting guide him. The laws of nature are the same laws that govern these minds and bodies. As a human being, we have the capacity not just to be a part of nature, not just to be a part of these same laws that govern nature, but to come to know these laws, to come to understand them. And in so doing, we can learn to live in alignment with these laws of nature that will allow us to find peace, and freedom. And over the last few weeks, I've been speaking about the seven factors of enlightenment. And sometimes these factors can seem quite far removed from the wilderness we may feel that we face as a human being you know, all of the struggles that we face, and many of the tragedies that we find ourselves exposed to in the living of this life. And so I'd just like to remind us of the framework in which these seven factors of enlightenment are offered. The framework of being wholesome factors that we can arouse in the mind that will help lead us out of this wilderness that will help us to see into the nature of this mind and body. These wholesome factors strengthening the power of the mind to be able to see clearly, to be able to discern, and to be able to uh, arouse liberating insight that can shift the whole relationship that we have 
with this mind-body process from being one of suffering to being one that we can find freedom with. So just briefly reviewing the factors of enlightenment that we've already touched upon. The first factor being that of mindfulness. Remembering to come back to our experience. Remembering to be present with experience. Mindfulness allowing us to do so. To turn our attention to the experience in this moment. The second factor being that of investigation. The non-analytical, intuitive investigation into the texture and qualities of experience that we meet. The mind probing into experience and discerning of its qualities. The next factor being that of effort or energy the effort or energy required to connect with experience moment after moment. Being able to arouse the appropriate effort or energy, whether it be a strong, deliberate uh, arousing of energy or whether it be a surrendering, a softening to receive experience. The next factor being that of rapture, where there's a joyful interest in our experience. A joyful interest that delights in seeing truth. Or a raptness of attention that leads to a lightness and agility of mind and body. And in its depths becomes pervasive, through which we find contentment arising which gives rise to the next factor of enlightenment, that of tranquility or calmness. And this is where there's a coolness of mind that has been released from the restlessness and agitation of mind. A deeply restful state. And this gives support to the next factor of enlightenment, that of concentration. Concentration being the next of the stabilizing factors. Concentration is that which allows us to exclude distraction. We can look at concentration uh, by the way of just looking at the level of concentration that is necessary in order to read a book. You know, there can be a level of concentration where we're simply connecting with the words. And there might just be uh, a, a knowing of the words, but the, you know, not a deep understanding of the words. Maybe we're reading a book in a room that's filled with a lot of distractions. TV on, people talking, and trying to concentrate can be very difficult. And yet if we keep staying steady in just paying attention to the words on the page, there can come a point where we are so absorbed, so interested in what we are reading, that we forget about everything else in the room. That there's just uh, a calmness in the reading of this page, there's an interest, and the mind doesn't waver. It just stays steady and absorbed in the words on the page. And in that way, we come to experience this simple act of reading much more deeply. This can happen similarly in our meditation practice. You know, at first, we might be using the breath in order to strengthen concentration. And, um, you know, it might at first be quite a battle to 
collect the attention on the breath. But then we keep staying steady in our efforts and it begins to happen with greater and greater ease that we can connect with the experience of this breath, the movement of the breath, the rhythm of the breath. And in doing so, um, we start to sustain the attention. And then we begin to feel as if we are immersed in the experience of breath. At this time, all of the other distractions around us may um, just recede into the background. They aren't calling on our attention. And there's quite an effortlessness and ease with being with the experience of the breath. And, you know, it's really moments where there's complete simplicity in being with our experience. You know, we're able to just connect with the breath and to sustain the attention in a really easeful way, in a restful way. The Buddhist dictionary uh, has a definition of concentration as being the mental state of being firmly fixed or the fixing of the mind on a single object. So concentration being where we can firmly fix the mind on an object of concentration. And just in saying that, firmly fix um, can lead to something that is actually contrary to concentration where if that fixedness, if we think it holds with rigidity in it, tightness in it, that is not going to help the mind to concentrate. Because the mind, uh, actually the, the proximate cause for the arising of concentration is said to be happiness. And with happiness there's an ease of mind. So even though concentration has this capacity to firmly fix on an object, it's done in an easeful manner. And so to remember that when we are bringing our attention to something like the breath or to a metaphrase to establish concentration, that there needs to be an ease in the way that we bring the attention. There needs to be a lightness. And, you know, with that, it can have the sense of opening to the receptivity of that experience. So it can be opening to the receptivity of receiving the breath. You know, if we're looking at uh, doing it in an easeful way, when we bring the mind to the experience of breath, at first it might be just feeling the motion of that breath, the fluidity of the motion. And and maybe even tuning into the pleasant quality of that fluidity to help bring about this happiness of mind that helps concentration to happen. So not seeing it, you know, often it's like when we sit down, we're going to be with the breath and we get fixed with it, tighten. You know, there's a tightening that happened, but that's not going to help. So really looking for that restful quality that can help us to connect. Concentration is said to be one of the seven universal uh, mental factors that arise in any moment of consciousness. And these universal factors are all necessary in order for consciousness to cognize experience. And so concentration is actually something that we work a lot with in, uh, in any moment of experience. You know, we need concentration in order to read a book, as I spoke about, to listen to this Dharma talk. We need concentration in order to carry on a conversation. Uh, We need concentration in order to drive a car. Um, A burglar needs concentration in order to skillfully carry out an act of theft. Um, Today, In today's culture, 
there's a way in which uh, we commonly hear concentration spoken about as moments where we're in the flow or in the zone. Moments where there's an ease in connecting with this quality of concentration in an act of doing. I was amazed quite recently when I was watching the Olympics to see the degree of concentration that athletes have. And, you know, I noticed this particularly with the gymnastics because the gymnastics were held in huge auditoriums and there could be more than one event happening. And so there could be an athlete who was maybe on uh, the high bar of gymnastics, you know, twirling around, doing double flips. And while they were doing this, it might be that somebody else was performing at the same time, and that the crowds could be cheering at really inopportune moments. You know, I remember one moment where somebody was doing a really difficult maneuver on the high bar, and in the other side of the auditorium, suddenly the audience there was booing, probably in the results that were being uh, displayed for another athlete. But, you know, if you're in the middle of doing this double flip and suddenly you hear something, people booing, if your concentration isn't strong, it's not going to be easy. (laughs) You know, the consequences could be quite dramatic. And yet, I just saw that many of these athletes at those moments were so in the zone that they didn't waver, they didn't wobble, they were steady, their minds were fixed. But not all moments of concentration are wholesome. Not all moments of concentration are going to be helpful to us in the cultivation of the seven factors of enlightenment. We need to be cultivating concentration that is not based upon greed, hatred, and delusion. That is not uh, bringing to... um, greater light these qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion. And we can find in our meditation practice, you know, if, if we're working with the breath, say, it isn't always wholesome. But sometimes we can actually be cultivating unwholesome concentration. And this is where these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion get entangled with our concentration, where we might be um, using concentration to try to uh, suppress anger or aversion. And, you know, it can be a skillful means when we are feeling angry or aversive to want to strengthen concentration, but if we're doing it just from the basis of aversion, then this is unwholesome. We might at these times find that we're really trying to latch on to the breath, hang on to the breath. And this too is unwholesome. We might find that we're motivated to be with the breath just to experience tranquility, peace. And this too can be unskillful. It can be through attachment to this state of calmness, peace. So we want to work with concentration as a wholesome concentration. You know, and so in our practice that will mean there will be moments when this grasping comes in, when aversion comes in. With mindfulness we can just see this and let go and settle back into the simplicity of right concentration. Simply connecting and sustaining the attention with our experience. When we can do this, 
we will find that there is not the flickering or wavering of our attention. That our attention is then not superficial. It's not from uh, the experience of the agitated mind, the restless mind that is ceaselessly jumping from object to object. Narada Mahatera describes concentration in this way as being like a, a steady lamp flame in a windless place. It is like a firmly fixed pillar that cannot be shaken by the wind. It is like water that binds together several substances to form one compound. Concentration is very, very powerful because it can collect the attention and unify the mind. And it brings a great power into the mind. It's actually said to have leadership qualities because you know, it can bring about this unification There's a common example that's used to, um, to show just how powerful concentration can be. And that's um, you know, to look at having a piece of paper out in the rays of the sun. And as the rays of the sun hit the piece of paper, it will gently warm that piece of paper. And if we were to put a magnifying glass between the sun and this paper, the rays of the sun become much more powerful. And that piece of paper can actually burst into flame. And this is likened to the power of concentration. You know, when it brings together all of the different factors of mind, um, that it can just unify and in the way of insight meditation, it can help the mind to penetrate into liberating insight so that we can really see things as they are. In concentration being a powerful force in the mind, it can also mean that at times when concentration is present, we have very strong experiences. You know, with strong concentration, we can feel like our bodies are huge or very small, that things become magnified. You know, and that whatever we turn the mind towards can seem huge, as if we're really viewing things in a, a magnified way. But this is very helpful to insight meditation. we find that concentration gets manifested as peace. And we know this in moments when our minds are deeply concentrated, that there is a great peacefulness because the mind is at rest. Even if the concentration we're developing is what's called momentary concentration, where we moment after moment connect with the changing nature of experience, this in itself brings about strong concentration. And because the mind is not in conflict, we will find that there is a peaceful quality manifest in these moments. We can also find that concentration is deeply healing because of this restful quality. You know, there's many stories that we hear of remarkable healings that happen through practice, through the strengthening of concentration.
there are two different ways that we can work with the strengthening of concentration. We can work with concentration through samatha, or tranquility practice, where there is an object of meditation, and we keep returning the mind to that object of meditation. And the Buddha talked about there being 40 different types of tranquility meditation, 40 objects that one could use that are skillful objects to uh, work as a central focus of developing deep levels of concentration. The breath can be used to develop concentration. We also use this when we uh, do the Brahma-vihara practices, where with metta, or loving-kindness meditation, we continually keep returning the mind to this quality of metta, or loving-kindness, and letting it deeply absorb into this quality. As the mind becomes deeply absorbed, we develop what are called the jhanic factors. And these jhanic factors uh, can be helpful whether or not we're doing this absorption practice or we are doing the cultivation of the momentary concentration, which is what we're doing in Vipassana meditation. So I want to speak just a little bit about the cultivation of these jhanic factors because they become very helpful in working with the overcoming of the hindrances. And, you know, the hindrances are um, desire, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, um, and aversion. And these, when these qualities are present in the mind, they hinder our clear seeing, they hinder the deepening of concentration. So there's a framework of antidotes for working with these hindrances that come through the cultivation of the jhanic factors. And so sometimes when we hit the hindrances, it can remember, it can be helpful to remember what jhanic factor is the antidote to this hindrance. So the first of the jhanic factors is that of vitaka. This is that of applied thought, or of connecting with experience. The aiming of the mind and connecting with our object of, a, of meditation. In doing so, in just the simple connecting with experience. This can be invigorating to the mind. This can bring about uh, a lot of energy. And this can help to overcome or to dispel sloth and torpor. This is helpful to remember in those moments when sleepiness is really strong or when dullness is strong that we can simply work with connecting with the experience, aiming the mind, so that we're not, you know, being worried or preoccupied with uh, staying with experience moment after moment after moment, which can be a heavy way to uh, hold the practice, but we just keep working with connecting. So in being with the breath, connecting with the experience of the breath, the flow of sensations. In metta practice, we work with just the connecting with the phrases. So if we're working with this quality of connecting, it might not be that we feel fully immersed in that experience, but we simply connect. And remembering that this connecting 
can be done in a light way, in a receptive way. It doesn't mean heavy-handed. The next jhanic factor is that of vichara. And this is where we work with sustaining with the object of meditation or immersion with the object of meditation. And this is where, you know, if we're connecting with the experience of the breath, then we begin to immerse into that experience and being really directly experiencing that breath. Or in metta practice, if we're working with first connecting with the phrases, then with this quality of vichara, we begin immersing, we begin feeling the metta. We begin to have a sense of the meaning of those phrases. There's a quality of immersion into it. And in these moments, doubt can be dispelled because there's this direct connection with experience. When doubt is present, you know, it's very much, um, you know, can be doubt about the practice, doubt about ourselves, doubt about the technique, and there's a distancing that happens. And so this quality of immersion is the antidote. You know, really, don't hold back. Just let yourself fall into experience and really immerse yourself in experience. This helping to dispel doubt. The third uh, factor is that of piti or joy. And I spoke about this last week as a factor of enlightenment. You know, it's that um, where we begin to feel a joyous quality in in connecting with experience, a lightness, an agility in the mind. And this counteracts aversion. Aversion having that uh, sense of distancing from experience, where when piti is present, this joyful interest, there's a connecting, a closeness with experience. And the lightness, we delight in seeing truth rather than disconnecting with our experience. The next uh, jhanic factor is that of sukha, or happiness. It can be a happiness of mind that's born of concentration, where there's ease and comfort, contentment and calm. Last week, when I was speaking about rapture, I spoke about the simile of the traveler who is really hot and thirsty and sees a distant cool pond and just the delight that arises in the mind in the scene of that pond. Well, with sukha, it's like that same traveler, but, you know, the, 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 the experience of sukha is that of actually drinking from that pond and the contentment and ease that comes. You know, so there's a real contentment um, and ease, comfort that happens with sukha. And this is the antidote to restlessness. You know, we've let go of that agitation in the mind. So in moments when agitation is strong in the practice, when there's a lot of restlessness, we can actually use these sensations of restlessness to help us to move into a deeper state of calmness, focusing strongly on these sensations. And in a very short period of time, we find that we can actually move from restlessness into calmness, into sukha. The last jhanic factor is that of ikagata, It's where there's a one-pointedness of mind that brings about a clear, focused 
unity. When this is present, we will find that, you know, the, the pleasure that we experience through um, sense desire loses all attraction. And that it really helps us to overcome desire. We find that the mind becomes secluded. There is in concentration or absorption practice actually a progression of jhanic states where the mind goes from the simple seclusion and gradually lets go of stimulating qualities in the mind until it culminates in this focused unity upon the specific object of meditation. And there we find a great peace and calmness. And the mind is temporarily freed of the hindrances can be quite powerful to experience in our practice. And, you know, in states of absorption, we come to know something of the mind freed of greed, hatred, and delusion, because the hindrances are temporarily at bay. Jhanic practice was actually very common in the time of the Buddha. And the first two teachers of the Buddha were teachers of jhanic uh, practices. And the Buddha practiced with these teachers, learned very well these forms of practice, and realized that even though he could experience deep states of calmness and tranquility, even though he may have had mystical experiences, even though psychic powers can be cultivated through the the deepening of this concentration practice, he realized he was not completely free. And then he found a way to go beyond these jhanic uh, practices in the way of liberating insight. To turn this power of concentration to the changing nature of experience. And to be able to penetrate experience, and to see into dhammas, to see into the true nature of experience. So he also taught that for some people, they can work directly with this momentary concentration as a basis of seeing into the true nature of experience. And we find that now in a lot of practice, as it's taught in the West, that there is a strong focus on the cultivation of this momentary concentration, where moment by moment we focus the mind on experience. And in doing so, concentration strengthens. This seems to be helpful for many of us because we don't have, you know, huge periods of practice time available to us that are really needed in order to develop deep levels of absorption. That uh, it can also be that um, we in our lives may not be in really quiet, secluded places when we practice. And so if we can learn to be present and connect with whatever our experience is in any moment, then it will be very helpful to the deepening of this momentary concentration. We find as we develop this momentary concentration as the way that we do in Vipassana practice, that there are similar to jhanic states that arise in absorption practice, also Vipassana jhanas that arise. But they differ in that they are actually insight stages with the mind absorbed into dhamma, or the true nature of experience. The mind is not absorbed 
in the way that it is in concentration practice, which is really just into the uh, the object of one one object of meditation, but it's absorbed into being able to still recognize the three characteristics that are common to all experience. So we can still see the changing nature of experience. We can still see the unsatisfactory nature of experience because it is continually changing. And we can still see into the insubstantial nature of this experience. In Vipassana jhanas, there's a progression through uh, beginning with just the happiness of seclusion, a great delight in in just secluding the mind, uh, being able to stay present with our experience. And this moves into the happiness of concentration, which moves into the happiness of contentment. And then this moves into the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. And the ultimate jhana being the complete release of the mind, or the mind clinging to nothing, the touching of the unconditioned, or the heart's release. Each of these jhanas is accompanied by deepening insight. In the first jhana, we experience insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of experience. In the second uh, Vipassana jhana, we have deepening insight into the arising and passing away, the nature of all phenomena. In the third Vipassana jhana, we have deepening insight into seeing things as they really are, And in the last Vipassana jhana, there is insight into the nature of conditioned reality, which brings about a deep peace. The deepening of concentration is really quite, on some levels, a beautiful experience, and I'll come back to the levels that aren't so beautiful. <laughs> but as we experience concentration deepening, we can really get attached to it because it is so calm and so peaceful. You know, just as I was speaking about um, last week with the quality of calmness and tranquility, how we can get attached to that. The same is so with concentration. And Um, It's really when we start to identify with that concentration as belonging to us, Uh, identifying uh, in the way of wanting to hold on to it. And so it's really necessary to have a wise relationship to it. It's really helpful to bring this quality of mindfulness to it, to be able to recognize when concentration is present to be able to recognize the pleasant qualities that arise with this concentration, and to be able to uh, keep seeing that um, it is only conditioned experience, comes about when you know, certain factors have been strengthened, but is not uh, the deep unbinding of the heart is only a temporary condition, but it can help to lead us to that which is truly freeing. I guess right now to say what is the the more difficult aspect of concentration is that it is a form of purification. And so what that means is there will be moments in our experience where we experience a real purity with concentration. 
And it can be, you know, in those moments where there's effortless effort, where there's just, where this feeling of being in the flow uh, with experience, there's no resistance to our experience, and it's quite wonderful. But then things will change. Conditions will change. And the tenseness that we often experience, the tightness, the contraction we experience with life will come back. And it will be really painful. It will be even more painful because we have experienced this purity, this ease. And so in our practice, we will go through moments where there's this great purity and moments where it's gone. It's painful. It hurts. And what we need to do is just stay steady with that whole process. That that which obstructs the mind, that which keeps us from deep peace, is going to get uplifted. Our habits that are so painful will re-arise until we have really gone to the roots of the causes of our suffering. And so what we can do is when those uh, roots, those habits start to arise again, to stay interested. Because that's our momentary experience. Not to be daunted in those moments, but to take an interest in our suffering. To take an interest in those moments of agitation, aversion, greed. And to look closely. And that will help to bring about stronger concentration again. And that will help us to stay in the process of purification. So there's a real importance to strongly establishing concentration because it is really necessary in um, the arising of insight. You know that we need to have a foundation of concentration for liberating insight to arise. So needing to look at how we can have a wise relationship with this factor of enlightenment. The first, being able to recognize when it is present, to recognize when it is not present, being able to uh, know the reasons or causes and conditions get that help it to arise, and then once it's arisen, how we can maintain it. You know, this is with all of the seven factors of enlightenment. <clears throat> and then more ways that we can uh, work with the supporting of concentration. Some of these I've already spoken about. Uh, some of them are quite similar in all of the factors of enlightenment. And uh, one is that of cleanliness. Again, I spoke about this when I spoke about investigation. You know, that... Uh, having body cleanliness, external environment of cleanliness, is really conducive to a clarity of mind, clarity of mind that we need to strengthen concentration. It's said with concentration, uh, strengthening of it, that it's helpful to have a clear mental image. This directly applies if we're doing uh, concentration practice, uh, where, you know, if it's metta practice, we want to have, you know, a clear image of the person whom we're working with, or not meaning just the visual image, but that the, the, there's clarity around the phrases. Um, there's clarity in what our object 
of meditation is. And similarly, I think this is true when we're working with momentary concentration or Vipassana meditation, that it's helpful to know how to skillfully work with concentration, that sometimes we really need to uh, keep the practice very simple, to work with the breath, to strengthen concentration, and then when it's really fluid, that we can open up the field of awareness. But if we're not sure what we're doing, and we sit down, and we just immediately try to open up the field of awareness, and concentration isn't there, then we can become confused. And you know it can lead to states of restlessness. So needing to be clear about what will be skillful way to work within Vipassana meditation with the strengthening of concentration. We also need to learn how we can uplift the discouraged mind because happiness is being the proximate cause of concentration. One of my favorite ways when I find that my mind is getting quite discouraged with uh, practice or discouraged with the conditions of my life is to do moments of appreciation practice where I just sit and call to mind things in life in that moment that I can truly appreciate whether it's having the opportunity to practice, whether it is um, that it's a quiet environment, whether it's having shelter, whether it's being surrounded by like-minded people, um, whether it's having a full stomach, just whatever comes to mind as to the simple qualities, simple things in life that I can appreciate, can have a very simple way of gladdening the mind. Another way of uplifting the discouraged mind can be to go out and to sit in nature and just to allow yourself to be touched by nature. can be very uplifting to the mind. Another way of strengthening concentration is to be able to calm the over-enthusiastic mind. You know, and it happens that we have moments of insight, moments where um, we've seen things in a new way, and we can become over-enthusiastic. And we need to remember that we need to stay steady in practice that that will bring about more balance so there can be continuing insight rather than just glorifying one insight to just staying steady. We need to be able to find ways to cheer the mind when it is withered by pain. We experience a lot of pain, whether it's in the body, or the mind. Actually, quite recently I was at a Dharma talk that Ruth Dennison gave, and she started out by saying, the body is merciless. Now, and Ruth Dennison, you know, she has a few years on me, and, you know, well into the aging process. And so, you know, at times this body can just be so merciless. And, you know, sometimes we're just so bogged down in our emotional pain. And so we need to find ways of cheering the mind. In our practice, because we are really looking deeply into our suffering, that sometimes we forget in moments when we're faced with this, um, you know, merciless qualities that the body can present or that the mind can present, um, that we do need to have uh, some happiness and ease. And so we need to be able to uplift the mind so we aren't just entrenched. And that can be learning to turn the attention in skillful ways to ways that will inspire us 
the ways that will uplift us. Can be periods of doing metta practice, can help to uplift us. Can be, um, as I just mentioned, periods of sitting in nature. It's also said to be helpful to avoid people that have strong habits of distraction, of staying unfocused, and instead choosing friends who really have cultivated concentration in their lives. And, you know, a sign of somebody who has deep concentration may be that they live a life of renunciation. Because concentration requires of us letting go, letting go of sense pleasures in order to focus the mind, in order to unify the mind. It's also said to be helpful to reflect on the peace of absorption. If we're doing uh, jhanic practice or strong concentration practice, it can happen that we have almost a cellular memory of what it feels like when the mind is deeply concentrated. And it can also happen that when we sit, if we call that to mind, it's almost like a fast track into a deepening concentration. And similarly, if we can remember what it feels like in Vipassana meditation to have strong concentration, just that memory in itself can help to calm the mind, can help it to uh, strongly connect moment by moment with experience. It can also be helpful to remember the importance of concentration and make a resolve or commitment to the strengthening of that in our practice. And so sometimes we work, might work really specifically with just the strengthening of this factor. Last year, I had an opportunity uh, and I felt like to explore some of the vastness of the, of the different techniques offered by the Buddha. I was doing four months of practice, and they weren't four months in a row. So uh, there was three practice periods in it. So for the first period of practice, I practiced jhana meditation. And you know it was really just um, working with the deepening of concentration through absorption. And then, later on, I did some anapanasati, practicing mindfulness of breath. And then, later on, I practiced with Sayadaw Upandita, and I practiced with the four foundations of mindfulness. And that really just was highlighting to me the power and importance of this uh, factor of enlightenment, and that there are many ways that we can work with the strengthening of it. I think it's really important in the strengthening of concentration to remember also um, that we are often not good judges of our own concentration, and to really watch for the judging mind. I can't tell you the number of times that yogis have come into interviews and began by saying, my concentration is no good. And, you know, this is really just the judging mind. And it's just a thought. And you don't need to believe it. You can really just work with, moment by moment, unifying the mind, collecting the mind upon whatever experience is happening in the present moment. And really, the mind resting with that experience. And that will bring about, you know, a deep ease in your practice. Even though 
experience is continually changing. There's just this unification of mind. Very, very powerful. Very essential. And remembering, you know, regardless of what I may have said, that the simplest experience is just to be able to connect and sustain with whatever your experience is. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the power of the concentrated mind, the peace of the concentrated mind as a basis for liberating insight. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. 
The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion